Uh, welcome everyone to the Streaming Water Podcast. Thanks for uh, tuning into this episode today. Today we're going to talk drinking water PFAS. We have a couple national experts from Burns and McDonald with us. We have Trevor Cook and Ryan Kirkland here to break down uh, PFAS in drinking water, answer all of our questions. So thanks for being here, Trevor. Thanks for being here, Ryan. Thanks, Blair. Thank you, Blair. Really appreciate the opportunity. Yeah, this will be a good one. I know PFAS is a hot topic that uh, everyone's talking about. I'm on the wastewater side, and we've done shows on wastewater and PFAS and wastewater. But I'm curious, and I've been getting questions about drinking water and, and how that relates to, to treatment and and uh, cost and that kind of thing. So why don't we start out with uh, with some intros. Trevor, you're the Process Technology Director, I know, but uh, I'll let you introduce yourself. Go ahead. Hey there, I'm uh, Trevor Cook. I've been uh, designing water and wastewater plants for about 30 years now and uh, currently have the honor of um, helping uh, Burns and McDonald's Water Group with um, all their process uh, engineers. Cool. All right. Ryan, uh, how about you? Yeah. Hello, everyone. Um, I am an industrial and water and wastewater process engineer, Burns McDonald. Um, my educational background includes degrees in chemical and environmental engineering. Um, I focused a, a lot of my early career working in a treatability laboratory, uh, designing and, and testing uh, different wastewater treatment processes. Um, at Burns and McDonald, I'm part of a team that Trevor leads um, that's designing and constructing water and wastewater plants throughout the U.S., both in industrial and municipal sectors. What about uh, what about hobbies? I know you guys are uh, you're at the home office in Kansas City, right? You're just coming off the big Super Bowl win. Is a uh, what other hobbies you got besides winning Super Bowls over there? For me, I'm a I'm a big Dungeons and Dragons nerd, so uh, that's one of my things that I use to burn time. I'd like to try to play golf, but, you know, uh, not very good at it. Cool. Yeah. I like golf too, Trevor. Um, you know, it's, it's tough to find time to play sometimes because it, it does take a pretty good uh, commitment. Um, but I also enjoy some woodworking and fishing. Nice. All right. Well, now the, uh, the interesting question for you. Uh, what's a movie you wish you could watch every day or a movie you could watch every day? It would be just fine if you sat down and watched it every day. Trevor? Yeah, Blair, it's a great question. I mean, you probably hear the normal ones like, you know, Star Wars and Harry Potter and all that stuff. But I'm going to go I'm going to go with the Sylvester Stallone movie called Over the Top about arm wrestling. Love uh, that. I saw that when it first came out. Yes, that is a classic. Over the Top. All right. That's a good one. All right, Ryan, how about you? All right, so I'm going to go with, a, I think, a little bit older movie from 1976, the original Midway uh, movie. It had an all-star cast. It was a captivating story. It was actually the first movie that my parents went to see in the theater when they were in college. Wow. Uh, what's it? It's called yeah. Midway? M Midway, yeah. It's about the, the, the famous battle in the, in the Pacific during World War II. Oh, all right, I'll have to check that out. I haven't seen that. I've seen, I'm more of like an over the top kind of guy than Midway, I guess. Well, I will tell you, there's uh, there's an appearance by uh, Pat Morita who who would later play Mr. Miyagi in The Karate Kid. So All right. you've got you'll, uh, you'll find that pretty interesting. Yes, yes, I will. All right. I think mine would be, uh, well, lately I've been watching The Quick and the Dead. I don't know if you, it's not that great of a movie, but whenever it's on, I seem to just like 
watch it till it's until the end of it. I don't know why it's an easy watch, especially when you know what's going to happen. But all right, cool. Well, let's get into more uh, scientific engineering. Uh, the topic at hand here, which is PFAS. Uh, so I guess the first question is what's happening with, with PFAS as far as regulations in the drinking water sector? What, uh, what are states doing? What is, uh, the EPA doing? Uh, maybe, maybe fill us in on that if you could, Ryan. Okay. So, um, this point in time, I think it's very exciting to be in the water industry. Um, PFAS is one of the hottest topics. It's, it's just about reached a boil and, yeah, we've been watching that pot for a really long time, um, it seems. Um, it, it'd be great if EPA dropped their final regulations right in the middle of this podcast so we could uh, break some news, but I don't expect that at least for a, a, another little bit. Um, there are some some state regulations that are existing. I'm going to try to focus on you know what's at the national level. Um, so EPA, uh, they have put out some draft uh, enforceable drinking water limits for six different PFAS compounds uh, in March of last year. Um, that followed up some health, some revised interim health advisory limits that they put out in, in 2022. And let's just talk a little bit of numbers. The health advisory limits um, were incredibly low. I'm essentially zero for the two main PFOS compounds they were focused on, PFOA and PFOS. Um, PFOA is also uh, referred to sometimes as C8. Um, they are two of the original compounds that, that have been produced in, in the country and have had severely uh, limited production in recent decades. So to give you an idea, the initial health advisory limits and the interim limits in 2022 were four parts per quadrillion. So if we were to just to put it in a context, if we were to add up all of the of the PFOA and all of the water used in the United States in a day, the, the health advisory limit was one teaspoon in over 300 billion gallons of water. Wow, that is so, crazy. I've never, uh, never heard it put like that. That's it's not very ex much. Exactly, exactly. So fast forward to 2023 when the drinking water limits come out. And if we do the same rough calculation, the, the limits that they're going to, that they've proposed are a little higher. They're actually a thousand times higher than that, but it's still only a little over one gallon in all that water. Um, so it, it's, it's just a... The tiniest amount EPA believes will cause adverse health effects. So that's really why they're why they're doing this. Maybe I should have uh, you know, we jumped right into it because we're all science nerds here, but uh, and we've had programs on this topic. But maybe just take us through it real general. What is PFAS and why why do we care about it? PFAS is a, a you know the, the chemical engineering name of it is per and poly fluoro alkyl acids um, or substances. So essentially what that means is carbon bonds, um, a big long carbon chain with fluoride uh, or attached to it. Why that matters, it makes it, the carbon fluoride bond is extremely strong um, to the point it's, it's uh, breaking a water molecule apart as a piece of cake compared to trying to break one carbon fluoride bond. So um, 
you, you said uh, at the beginning of the podcast here that uh, let's break down PFAS. That's the problem is it doesn't break down. It's a very, very, very stable um, molecule that uh, that is just pervasive. Yeah, we've gotten uh, so good at chemistry, creating these chemicals that, uh, you know, do certain things. And then uh, sometimes they bite us, I guess. This is seems like one of those. Well, let's uh, let's get back to the regs. How big these new regs coming out? You said they're a thousand times higher than the uh, warning limits, or what did you call the initial the health advisories? Health advisory, but how how much of an effect will that have on systems throughout the the United States? Are we talking all systems going to have to treat for this? Half of them, or, or is there any projections on how much this is going to affect treatments plants? It's going to affect almost all drinking water systems. Um, because these initial limits, uh, the proposed limits, let's just take PFOA, for example, uh, four parts per trillion. That's essentially detection limit. So if you're detecting anything, you've, you've got to treat, you've got to get to non-detect. Um, and, and so they're going to have to install some sort of treatment in most of the drinking water plants in the, in the United States. And just to put that in perspective in dollars, um, if we look at EPA's cost curves on a typical uh, granular activated carbon treatment system uh, for a 10 million gallon per day plant, you could expect to pay $7 million in capital costs, but we'll have ongoing operating costs of a million dollars annually. So that that is really going to stress most of the smaller systems, certainly, but also the, the larger systems, it's there will be no um, public water system that that wouldn't be untouched by this. Yeah, and to carry on a little bit, that uh, one of the things that I found interesting um, when the EPA put this out originally, uh, they said of the sixty-six thousand water systems that they uh, that they oversee, they figured about. 4,850 of them are expected to exceed the uh, the MCL that they're proposing, which is about 7.3% of the systems. Recent testing data is showing that that number might be, uh, well, certainly north of 30%, and it might be north of 40% of the systems. So it's considerably more treatment systems affected than what they originally thought might be the case. Wow. That's crazy. Even those numbers are are crazy so yeah i remember you know you talk parts per million and parts per billion now we're talking parts per trillion parts per quadrillion at that point it's like how low can you go is any of it real? like yeah these numbers are mind-boggling when you say it's a teaspoon in in all the water uh used in a day but yeah all right what is the what's the timeline you say these these regs are in development or they're they're being reviewed when do you think they would come out be finalized and when they get finalized does that mean systems have to comply right then or or do they give them uh you have some time to comply with the rule well that's a good question blair so we i think we expect the the final drinking national drinking water standards uh to come out this year uh they are due to come out any month now um, once they are finalized, uh, the affected systems and utilities typically have up to three years to comply with the limit. But the EPA administrator or a state that's 
has delegated authority uh, may be able to extend that period of an additional two years. So that would be five total. And I, I think that there could be some additional exemptions to allow smaller systems that are more heavily affected by uh, PFAS contamination to be able to, to get a little bit longer time in order to seek out funding. All right. Where's this PFAS coming from that's that's getting in the drinking water? Do they, I mean, it probably comes from a variety of sources, but where where's the main source of this stuff? So PFAS comes from a variety of, of different places. Um, it's used in a wide array of consumer products, your nonstick coating pans, your dental floss, um, other other items, uh, your pizza box has it coated in there to keep the cheese from sticking to the to the box. Um, so you get contact from it from a variety of different places, but it's it's produced and has been produced um, to make some other important um, chemicals, uh, one including uh, some firefighting foam. So this is what they call AFFF or aqueous form firefighting foam. And uh, th these chemicals are used in test sites, um, at airports, military bases, um, other industrial facilities, and it can get into the groundwater that way. Um, and if it contaminates a drinking water source from being in the groundwater, then that's how it ends up getting into, into people. But there's, there's multiple ways, but drinking water is probably the most common way. And to, to tack on to that a little bit, it's, it's interesting to me. Um, I have some friends in, in Maine who have had some um, pretty good struggles there with what to do about, you know, preventing uh, import of PFAS into the state. And, you know, to kind of put it into perspective, uh, almost every pump that pumps drinking water around the country has a Teflon seal in it. So uh, all of our drinking water is necessarily exposed to PFAS because of pump seals and and other components like that. Um, so there is some other carry-on effects of what happens under um, NSF 61. You know, how do we know none of that's leaching out into the drinking water? So that I think the story to be told on this is we're just in the the first of what would probably be a trilogy uh, in, in, in books because it's there's still a lot to be written around um, how this plays out. Yeah, Lord of the. Uh... Pump rings, I guess it would be. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. In Colorado, they're doing uh, legislation, which we've been involved in where I work. You know, to ban PFAS in in these consumer products, or at least try to reduce them. But I think it's, I mean, those things take years, and and that's the ones you can find. Some of it, it's like you don't even know where it is. You know, it's not. People say, well, you look at the the. SDS, the safety data sheet, lists the chemicals, but it doesn't break it down that far. As you know, there's, there's, you know, twenty percent PFAS, or I'm sure it's not that high, but it doesn't list PFAS on there. So it's, it's, yeah, I think going to be a long process now that we've figured out this stuff is bad to figure out how to, how to get it out of the system. Well, uh, I think we're to the mid-show segment. And this doesn't really have to do with PFAS, although it kind of does. It has to do with funding. Uh, there was an article in the uh, South Dakota News Watch by Bart uh, Fankuch, and he said uh, hundreds of millions of ARPA, which is uh, what is ARPA? American American Rescue Plan Act. 
So uh, the American Rescue Plan Act funneled $700 million to South Dakota for water and wastewater projects. And they're worried that they can't uh, use it. It had to be spent by 2026. And they're uh, because of, you know, money's one thing, but they don't, you know, the resources, the engineers, the construction materials, the the contractors, the planning that systems have to do to, to bring these projects, I guess, is not... Uh, ready for 600 million so they're worried they're going to lose the money because the 2026 goes back to the federal government and they don't uh they don't have it anymore so there's a quote from state senator helen duhamel it says hundreds of millions of arpa dollars are still unspent uh so until it's done none of us can feel comfortable uh she also said it's caused it's caused some sleepless nights and until everything is resolved at the end of this session when she's talking about the legislative session there in south dakota they're trying to figure out how to how to funnel this money to places and get it spent in time. But she says, until then, it's a real nail biter, which I would imagine it is. So I just thought that was interesting that there, you know, even money's not everything. It's everything else that goes into it. And I guess in South Dakota, there's probably, you know, less engineers and, and resources. But yeah, what do you think about that, Trevor? Yeah, I read that same article and was fascinated by it, uh, mainly because of the, a lot of this, um, you know, say what you want about politicians in, in Washington, D.C. The fact is that they directly affect our lives. They pass laws. They they provide massive funding for our industry. And uh, water and wastewater infrastructure couldn't exist without that. So it's very important to, to keep your fingers on that pulse. Um, you know, when federal money becomes available, it, it you keep hearing the term shovel ready. Let's go spend it, spend it, spend it. But there is a ramp up time. Um, and it does affect construction costs. Uh, you know, a lot of the money that's going into these um, water and wastewater plants, um, you get supply demand going on where all of a sudden there's a whole supply of money and a big demand for projects, but there's hurdles that you need to go through. So I think uh, to appease all the, the requirements of getting that money. So I, I feel for the people of South Dakota. And I mean, it's, I think it's across the whole country of there is a, there is a limit on how fast you could spend the money. And I think there needs to be some realization around that. Yeah. Yeah. I remember Yeah, when shovel ready was the big thing, what projects do you have now? So I think it, it just speaks to the need for utilities to, to do the planning, have projects identified and for engineers to be ready to tackle. I mean, it is a complicated thing. Plus like lead times on some of these uh, equipment. What are you seeing like lead times on your projects? Some of those are way out there, aren't they? Yeah, we just got a quote for a generator, like three and a half megawatt generator, and it was uh, it was over two years to get the generator. Well, that's a that's an extraordinarily long lead time compared to compared to what they used to be. Yeah, yeah. So they say you got to spend this money now. You got a two year lead time on a generator and put you in a. I could see why they'd be losing sleep there in South Dakota. But all right, let's move into uh, the treatment side, which is. Uh, very interesting to me. I guess the, the main question is how can we get this PFAS out of drinking water? And if so, how do we do it? What are the, uh, how do we get it out of there? Yeah, Blair, that's, that is the, uh, the billion dollar question or maybe trillion or quadrillion dollar question as, as we're getting into numbers here. Um, the funny thing is PFAS in of itself, there's thousands and thousands of PFAS compounds. Um, the EPA is picking on six of them. So right now in drinking water, there's uh, six compounds that are 
that are proposed for in the regulation here, um, but that there are thousands and thousands of others. Uh, some of them have really cool, interesting names. Um, and I think that, uh, you know, one of them's like perfluorobrodec, right? Uh, fluoroethyl, hexafluoromoron. Um, you know, these are things that uh, basically come down to having that carbon fluorine bond in them. Um, so how do we get it out of, how do we get it out of the water? Well, first of all, you got to tell us what the target is. And that's what the EPA has done. They said there's six compounds that we want to target. And with that, the EPA has now come forward and said, there are three technologies that we believe uh, can be used for drinking water to remove these six compounds. And they're reverse osmosis, um, granular activated carbon, and ion exchange. All three of those have different pros and cons, and it's kind of important to think about that. Ultimately, since this is a forever compound that doesn't go away, um, if we concentrate them up, say, in a reverse osmosis unit, now we have concentrated PFAS. So what do we do with that? And then to couple that with, there's a whole bunch of emerging technologies. People have looked at, you know, gamma radiation. They've looked at incineration. They've looked at um, all kinds of different things. So these are emerging technologies that will need to be considered as well. Yeah. All right. Ryan, what do you, what do you think about that? Yeah, I just wanted to pick up on the emerging technologies. Um, there's quite a few out there, and Trevor just mentioned some of them. Uh, supercritical water oxidation is another one that has has come out um, pretty heavily in the technology provider space. But they have more challenges because they're underdeveloped. There's going to be years before those get up to scale you know, they're just now showing some proof of concept, small scale, um, and they're really just not affordable or economical uh, compared to the three main uh, technologies that, that Trevor first mentioned and EPA is suggesting be used. Yeah. yeah and I, I uh, appreciate that, uh, that what you said there, Trevor, as far as, as the byproduct, I think people you know, we assume once you treat it, it disappears and it's uh, it goes into the uh, the ether or something. I don't know. But, yeah, this it, whatever you treat, you pull it out, but then it's pulled out into something else, either the air, the, the you know, biosolids as far as wastewater side or uh, residuals on the water side. So, yeah, that's another thing to think about is the whole forever concept. It's like weird that uh, when you can't break something down. Yeah, and I mean, EPA issued um, the ter the name of the document is called the Interim Guidance on Destroying and Disposing of Certain PFAS and PFAS Containing Materials that are not consumer products. That's the name of the document. In case you have amnesia, yeah, uh, or, um, or sorry, uh, insomnia, wrong word. But the um, when you read through that manual, and it's a it's a hefty hefty read, uh, they're saying. The fate of this is a, a thing, you know, you put it into the ground, that's an idea, but maybe it leaches out, uh, you know, so they're, they're not even sure what to do with it once we concentrate it up. And I think, as we were saying earlier about the trilogy, uh, the spate and transport of the concentrated um, material is going to be a, a real question that science has yet to answer. Yeah. I Speaking of the the cool names, I saw one of them, I think that's on the list, is called Gen X 
which gets me because I'm like, don't pin this on Gen X, you know, it's to call it millennials or something, not Gen X. <laughs> we didn't do this. It isn't, uh, don't associate it with Gen X. But yeah, there are some, uh, there's a bunch of them. Like you said, thousands of these PFAS compounds with names that people can barely pronounce. So it's like, you know, on one hand, it seems like the EPA is just kind of, which I guess they are making this up as they go along, trying to, you know, which is scary there. People think, well, there's an answer to this, but I mean, they picked off six, but what about the other, what about the other 5,000 or whatever that are out there? Well, and I think that that's part of it. I mean, a lot of times we, um, we regulate water and, and create these rules based on a, a target contaminant, um, you know, like cryptosporidium and giardia, for instance. But because of the the means we've put in to remove cryptosporidium and giardia, we've certainly stopped other pathogens from from um, becoming a problem. So it kind of is a target, might not be the target. And there's beneficial effects of, of looking into this. It's just this, in a way, is the logic um, is yet to be played out. So usually you kind of at least have a couple of plays down the the path before the logic. I mean, I don't even remember when endocrine disruptors uh, were the the term of the day. And then they did the research and saw that beer and milk had uh, thousands of times more endocrine disruptors and then they were trying to regulate water. And because of that, the, the endocrine disrupting um, hardcore regulation push kind of kind of fizzled out a bit. I'm not saying that's going to happen here on PFAS because PFAS has certainly gone further down the, the regulatory path than um, endocrine disruptors did, at least in my opinion. But um, it's an interesting comparison. Yeah. Yeah. I remember the whole endocrine disruptor thing when I did my master's degree. I did a paper on it. And back then they, they were called ecoestrogens. At least that's what the paper was like. These things that have estrogenic effects on fish or, or whatever and then it's kind of turned into the emerging contaminants and i guess this is you know all these things are kind of the same it's these contaminants that aren't traditional you know metals or or you know things that we think about as these man-made chemicals that like i say can come back and and bite us when we when we don't uh you know not sometimes i think we're not as smart as we think we are you know we create these things for a certain thing but we don't always do the work to figure out if they're going to cause problems later. Ryan, I think you wanted to uh, add something. Yeah, I just wanted to mention um, that some of the, the human health studies, they're still ongoing. Um, and I wanted to mention one in particular. The It's a very large study that's being done by the Agency for Toxic Substances and Disease, Disease Registry. Um, it's a multi-site PFOS study um, looking at exposure from PFAS and drinking water. And I wanted to mention it because one of the test sites is, uh, is El Paso County, Colorado. It's been conducted by the Colorado School of Public Health. They uh, finished up uh, all their participants um, toward the end of last year. So they don't have any more enrollment to do. Um, I think they are going to be releasing their results later this year uh, from that health study. There's one in Pennsylvania that's already released some results. And these, it, the, the first round of results will just be to show you know, if that population has been exposed to more PFOS has a higher amount than the national average in their blood. The second aspect that they're looking at are the potential health outcomes. So that will come later. 
Uh, but in the site in Pennsylvania, the numbers were elevated. Um, we'll have to see what it is, but keep an eye on El Paso County and the Colorado School of Public Health. Yeah, thanks. Trevor? Yeah, and I mean, to carry on with this, I, uh, the logic path that I was talking about earlier is, is a very important thing to me. And again, this is not any kind of bash on anything because I'm a huge fan of um, the regulations and how they come out. It's how I made my career. It's how I feed my kids. Yeah, but um, looking into the toxicology and, and the, the basis for uh, how they built these regulations up, you know, I thought it'd be fun to go to the um, uh, CDC uh, website and the American Cancer Society website um, and, and read what they have to say about it. And they're pretty non-committal, saying this might be a health hazard. Um, the toxicology reports that have been done have been primarily, it seems, on mice. And they give mice the equivalent of to a human of about a dime-sized dose of PFAS. And over a, a long period of time, uh, one of the most commonly cited things that happened was low birth weights. So it's there's still a little bit of, um, I think, uh, science to be figured out there to say what are the direct health effects. But... Uh, They've certainly moved ahead with the regulations as if it was a uh, an imminent health concern. So it's it's just an interesting other side of the scale, I guess. Yeah, yeah. The the whole connection from you know the toxicology and lab studies, whether it's mice or or humans, but the whole public health and toxicology side, how that relates to treatment, is is interesting. You know, like how do you do a study in a lab and then translate that to a to a treatment plan or a community. I think that's still, uh, still being worked out in some cases, but yeah. Okay. Um, Trevor, you said you guys are building, uh, building plants all around the nation. Are you building any PFAS treatment plants that you can, that you can talk about or have you, has that started yet? The, the construction of these treatment plants? Yeah, it, it has. Uh, we have, um, and I, I personally, I wasn't involved in this one, but our, our uh, office in Denver, uh, helped uh, Castle Rock, Colorado, with a uh, a really nice plant. I did get to go see it, and it's it's a fantastic facility. Um, uh, and they they currently are at a six million gallon a day treatment capacity that we're currently expanding to twelve million gallons a day. And it does have um, granular activated carbon in there for PFAS removal. And uh, if you know, it's a it's a great facility, um, and uh, the rest are they're kind of following on the heels of that. Um, a lot of studies going on right now, and a lot of folks are kind of taking a little bit of a wait and see approach to see when these regs hit what they are. Um, but you know, even in Kansas City here, uh, North Kansas City and Kansas City, Missouri are are looking in master plans about how to implement PFAS uh, treatment. All right. Well, good. What are uh... What are some of the challenges I get? I mean, money's probably a big one, but aside from the cost of, of treatment, what are some of the other challenges that uh, that there are there with, with PFAS treatment? So for me, it's you have to look at the whole chain. And if you could go to any big box store right now and buy literally pounds and pounds of PFAS, like it's a regular product, or um, the supply is still there. Like it's still prevalent. 
and yet drinking water is getting singled out to have to treat for it. Um, so that I think is a, a big challenge is if we continue to use it um, and we all love it. I mean, geez, we like going out in the rain and not getting wet. Uh, you can thank Gore-Tex for that or, or, you know, whatever your raincoats made out of pretty much. So I think there's something to do with the supply there um, and then how that gets into the water. Treatment wise, we talked a little bit about what do we do once we capture um, that question needs to be answered because you start saying, well, if they do list it as a, a hazardous substance, uh, it's a certain concentration. Well, let's just say your drinking water plant taking in it at a very low concentration through your treatment process, you now make a, a bigger, uh, you know, heavier concentration. Are you now a hazardous waste generator? Um, because that would cause a lot of, uh, consternation amongst water treatment plants to say, whoa, wait a while, we're just treating water here. We're not a hazardous waste generator. So I think we have to figure out some of those things. Um, you know, from a treatment perspective, we also talked about all the different species of, of PFAS there are and why we're picking on six versus thousands or PFAS in general. I mean, essentially, anytime you get two carbons together uh, with a bunch of fluorine on them, you now have PFAS. So we seem to be targeting one that have eight carbon atoms together. Uh, why not six? Why not more than eight? You know, it's there's a lot of questions to be answered, I think. So I think all of those things are, if you took the regs right now and built a system to treat for those six compounds and you met the requirement, what's to say that reg doesn't change again tomorrow? And now the system you built would have been something else. Yeah, that's, uh, yeah, being in this business where, you know, from my perspective, that's huge. You know, the the risk people want, you, you want to build a system that's going to last for 50 years, that uh, risk of it changing in, in five years is is scary. And it's, uh, you know, it can be a lot of, you know, lost money or, or sunk costs if, if things change that you've invested the public's money in. Uh, Ryan, what do you think of all this? I agree. I wanted to throw in another wild card to that uh, discussion of how things might change and that there is there are a couple cases at the Supreme Court right now and a pending decision on something called the Chevron Doctrine, which has been around for 40 years, uh, which essentially allows um, federal agencies in the executive branch to use uh, their reasonable interpretation of federal statutes where there might be something that's ambiguous or something that is is you know not very clear uh, or not even stated. And so prior to these cases, for the last 40 years, that's been the way federal agencies have used technical experts and scientists to help interpret uh, what is meant by the congressional statutes. And now the, the Supreme Court is considering rolling that back or limiting it, uh, which would completely change the way that the EPA uh, prepares regulations. And so depending on the timing on that, which is that decision is also expected later this year, uh, could affect numerous uh, regulations in that, that are water and wastewater depend on, but particularly these, uh, since they are very fresh. And that's a, that's a Supreme Court thing? Is that what you said? That is correct. Oh, a lot of a uh, lot of moving pieces to uh, 
to this whole puzzle here. Cool. Well, you guys, uh, I think Trevor, you mentioned, or you know, you said there's three main technologies now. There's some in the works, but as an engineer or a system owner, how do you go about saying should I use RO or not RO? What was it? Uh, ion exchange, activated carbon, or what was the other one? Oh, you're right. Yeah. Oh, Zara. Okay. Yeah. So how do you how do you pick? What is our what are those? What determines what you pick? I guess. And it's a great question. I think I think one of the things that I I try to tell people, and you know, the word expert gets thrown around a lot here. Um, to me, when a technology, when a change in regulations come out, a bunch of experts come running out of the the woodwork. It seems. Um, so I'm, I'm reluctant to call myself a PFAS expert. It hasn't really been a thing to treat for very long. So I warn people: Hey, when somebody's trying to profess this, like, do your do your diligence, like. Let's let's make smart decisions that are based in you know uh, science and math and engineering because if you can answer a question because math then you know you're doing all right but if it's well because it's a a, a reg it, it gets a little a little hairier um, so I think that you know expert wise put a put a pin in that um, and, and and question that treatment wise um, it is an interesting question it's I don't know that there's an answer to that. I think that, uh, you know, science is the scientific method and you make a, you make a theory, you test it, and then you revise the theory until you get it correct. So I think the treatments in that process right now, and unfortunately it takes time. Um, people want science and they want it right here, right now. But the reality is that we've learned over hundreds and hundreds of years of stuttering, studying things that, um, it, it does take time. And so that's what we, we need is to figure this out. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, thanks for your, your insights on PFAS. Do you got, uh, anything I missed on PFAS before we get into the end of show quiz that, uh, either of you want to add anything I forgot to ask you that I should have asked you? No, I'm interested to see where this all plays out. And I really appreciate you shining a light on it. This is, uh, this is, uh, this is good. There's thousands of communities in the U.S. Uh, do you got any advice for these communities on on what they should do to start uh, figuring out if they're going to need treatment and, and figuring out how to go about that? Yeah, I think they'll they'll definitely if these regs pass the way they are, everyone's going to need treatment. You know, logic being what logic is, it, it doesn't matter when a law is a law; you have to follow it. So, um, again, I go back to I, I would warn against experts like do your diligence find somebody that is thinking and representing you and what how your community feels around it because there is no uh there's no silver bullet here and um nobody wants to be on the hook saying if you do xyz then you're out of the weeds and you're good to go those are very dangerous words so um that's that's my opinion yeah all right thanks trevor ryan yeah I would add one thing that we haven't touched on yet are the challenges with sampling and analyzing PFOS uh, compounds. So my recommendation would be to make sure that uh, you've working with a very reputable lab that's uh, that's very skilled in doing the analyses and following the the correct sampling procedures. And I would I would add right now 
there is a procedure uh, that EPA has published for drinking water. That's the one that uh, that everybody's going to follow. So you just want to make sure that your laboratory is providing you the best data that, that you can get in order to make those decisions. Because you have bad data, you, you just can't make a good decision. Yeah, that's a good point. Well, thanks. Are you uh, are you guys ready for the end of show quiz? Bring it. All right. Let's I'll do it. Guys, it was uh, a hard question. <laughs> I'll let you guys tag team this. You can talk amongst yourselves before you uh, decide on a final answer. But today's quiz is a PFOS pop culture quiz. So it's kind of mostly music, pop culture, but all the answers are either going to have a P, an F, an A, or an S in them. All right. So question one, what was Victoria Beckham's stage name in the Spice Girls? Is it A, Scary Spice, B, Sporty Spice, C, Posh Spice, or D, Baby Spice? Which one is Be Victoria Beckham's name? I think she was posh, wasn't she? The Spice Girls are more your thing, Ryan, so I'll, I'll go with Posh. <laughs> You're going to go with Posh? You're going to take Ryan's no answer? All right, Posh is correct. Uh, Victoria Beckham was Posh Spice. You've got one out of three so far. On your way to a uh, to a sweep here. Uh, number two, what singer is nicknamed the chairman of the board? Is it A, Sammy Davis Jr., B, Frank Sinatra, C, Paul Anka, or D, Andy Williams? Which one of those is the chairman of the board? I, I, um, it's uh, Frank Sinatra. Let's Frank go with Sinatra, that. you got a final answer. That is correct. Also, Frank Sinatra is the chairman of the board. You are two for two here. Question number three. Oh, this one's a this one's a little harder. Who painted the banana that graces the cover of the Velvet Underground's debut el album? The banana on Velvet Underground's debut album is it A. Salvador Dali, B. Jackson Pollock, C. Pablo Picasso, or D. Andy Warhol? Who painted the banana? What do you think, Trevor? That's I was thinking tough. Warhol, but mm -hmm. A is Andy. So I mean, that's part of PFAS. <laughs> He's been around for forever, chemical. But um, yeah, I don't know. All right, let's go with Andy Warhol. We'll go with, we'll go with Warhol. Warhol. Final answer. Yeah. All right, you have swept the uh, end of show quiz. It is Andy Warhol. Uh, you'll have to look up the picture of the banana on Velvet Underground. This doesn't happen often. A three-question perfect score. So congratulations on uh, on the end of show quiz. And thanks for being here. I appreciate you guys taking the time to uh, give us some insight into PFAS. I know it's a, it's a popular topic, and I get a lot of questions on it. So thanks for uh, answering some of those questions today. I appreciate it. Yeah, thanks, Blair. Appreciate being here. Thanks very much, Blair. It was a fun time, and hopefully we'll chat again soon. Yeah, we'll have to we'll have to get back together in a year or so and see what's changed on the whole deal. Um, to our listeners, uh, thanks for listening. If you like the show, uh, please give us a five star rating on Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast player you're listening to. To our sponsors, uh, Colorado Wastewater Utility Council, Rocky Mountain Water Environment Association. Uh, thank you for your sponsorship. And uh, if listeners have any ideas on shows you want to hear or topics you want to hear about, uh, shows you want uh, you want to happen, you can get a hold of me 
at streamingwater at mail.com. Drop me a line. Tell me what you what you want to hear about or what guests you want to hear from. Uh, we love having experts in the field break uh, break these complicated topics down. So, all right. Well, thanks again, Trevor and Ryan. And uh, we'll see you next time on the Streaming Water Podcast.